It feels like any other summer morning in Washington, D.C. It's hot, it's sticky. We're with one of our reporters, Cam E. Kettles, outside of the Supreme Court. Okay, the opinion just came out. Whoa. This isn't just any opinion. It's a historic, landmark ruling that changes the way colleges choose who gets in. It's expected to change how colleges can think about race and diversity to decrease the number of Black, Latinx, and Native American students at universities across the country. Just hours after the decision was released, shouting matches would break out in front of the nation's capital. A sea of signs and loudspeakers, opponents yelling straight into each other's ears. Supporters rejoiced, opponents mourned. Some were driven to tears. For more than 40 years, Affirmative action has been the law of the land. It's been legal in most of the country. Most top universities have practiced it. Opponents of affirmative action argue that it effectively discriminates against Asian and white applicants by lowering their chances of admission. Universities argue it's critical to create diverse student bodies to include students from backgrounds that universities have historically failed to include to make university student bodies look more like America. But now, a seismic shift. The court holds that Harvard and UNC's admission pro programs violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Wow, my hand is shaking. As it applies to the Harvard case, why is my hand shaking? The court ruled that the practice was unconstitutional, citing that the 14th Amendment guarantees all racial groups equal protection under the law. Colleges can no longer use race-based preferences and admissions to increase diversity. Today, we're covering the fall of affirmative action, the day the decision dropped in DC and at Harvard, and how the dust settled in the hours and days following. Even if we don't know exactly how, the decision will have ripples across the country, across higher education. As journalists and students at Harvard, we witnessed what happened on our campus in the days after the decision dropped, why our classmates responded the way they did, and what the protests, the fights, the fears were really about. When the decision dropped, we sent four reporters to the heart of the protests in DC. More than a dozen others across four continents sprang into action to report on this landmark decision. In the coming months, we'll release a multi-part podcast series peeling back the layers of what exactly happened, what this means for students applying, and how a group of conservative anti-affirmative action activists defeated one of the most prestigious universities in the world. We'll take you into the Supreme Court, through the halls of Harvard, to the students impacted by it all. But now, from Washington, D.C. and Harvard, the fall of affirmative action. Here's how it went down. From the Harvard Crimson, I'm Frank Joe. This is News Talk. It's kind of weird that just happened. When the decision drops, Kim is right in front of the Supreme Court steps. Around 11 a.m., what did it look like? There was a group of supporters for SFFA. That's Students for Fair Admissions, the anti-affirmative action group that filed the lawsuit against Harvard, the group that the court had just ruled in favor of. They started setting up signs, and one of their leaders was talking to press. It became pretty chaotic, I think, after that point. It's a historical win for Asia and all Americans. Here's the guy talking to the press. He's Yu Kong Mike Zhao, 
the founding president of Asian American Coalition for Education, an anti-affirmative action group that filed a civil rights complaint against Harvard in May 2015. All children will, not, will no longer be treated as second-class citizens in college admission. It also help America advance into a colorblind society, realize what Dr. Martin Luther King dreamed 60 years ago. He famously said, you know, I want all children not to be judged by uh, color of their skin, but by content of their uh, character. Supreme Court ruling really Two hours after the decision drop, a few Harvard students show up. One of them is Nala Owens, a rising junior, who leads a civics education program at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Cam got to talk to her. Why are you here today? Just because I couldn't sit at home when such a monumental decision had been made, like stand aside and let SFFA speak for people who are supposed to be students applying and take that narrative. She explains that on the morning of the decision drop, organizers announced that air quality in D.C. was too poor. The students were told not to show up. But then, 30 minutes after the decision drop, the students decided to assemble an impromptu, completely student-run protest at the Supreme Court at 1 p.m. They're going off script planning on the fly. It's kind of messy organizing it just because it's been so hard uh, yeah. getting people with the miscommunications, but hoping things will ramp back up at around 1 p.m. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, when you first heard about the decision, what was your, your initial reaction? My heart was sinking, yeah. honestly, especially knowing that, like, my grandma had been working hard to, like, desegregate her school district and to think that the progress that she'd worked for and her generation had worked for is now being rolled back is just, it's like a slap in the face, honestly. One of our reporters, Michelle Enamponza, was also in the crowd. She got to talk to a Chinese parent against affirmative action at the protests, Yu Xiangxie. You're, you're a supporter of Students for Fair Education. Definitely. He explains that he supports diversity, but he says affirmative action uses skin color to create a campus that looks diverse rather than a campus with an actually diverse set of experiences. Actually, I support diversity. However, why I against this? Because we should find the correct way. I come from a small village from China. My son, he grew up in the United States. I think he's much more different from the people from China, from my city. It is the environment that, that you grow up that makes the diversity. But the majority of your concern is focused on the color, the skin color. That's something I think is wrong. But that's not the end. Not at all. Remember the students trying to organize an impromptu protest at 1 p.m.? Well, something throws a wrench in their plans. Around noon, police discovered something off in front of the Supreme Court. It was because of a suspicious package. The police eventually declared the package safe, but this is before they knew for sure. So they started clearing protesters away, pushing them into a street corner, Nala told us later how it all felt for her, as a pro-affirmative action protester in the crowd, being pushed away from the Supreme Court by police as students were arriving and trying to assemble. There was just 
confusion, pandemonium, and chaos. I honestly felt like I couldn't tell up from down, left from right. I didn't know if the person standing next to me was celebrating the decision or there to rally with me. I, I genuinely was just lost in a sea of people. She remembers meeting up with one of her fellow organizers, Kashish Bastola, a rising sophomore. And then, as she remembers it, uh, things did take a sharp turn. She says that anti-affirmative action protesters began gathering around her and Kashish. One of them starts yelling at them for supporting affirmative action. Nala remembers red signs for anti-affirmative action protesters, blue and purple ones for pro-affirmative action protesters, and Kashish, she says, starts arguing back. Michelle, our reporter, got to talk to Kashish, who's South Asian, about this confrontation. He was asking her, are you proud of yourself? Do you really believe that our community agrees with you? And she said that she doesn't even identify as South Asian and that she thinks that, you know, our country has been overridden by race. It just made him really frustrated. Nala says people on cameras started gathering around. And at that point, Kashish turned around to me and he said, I don't think I can do this anymore. I think I'm going to cry. And looking into his face and just seeing the hurt and the pain that the decision had caused him, but then also the people who continued to believe that black and brown students didn't belong on our campus, it just made it so real for me. And I think it made it real for him. So he started crying, I started crying, I went in for a hug, and we just stayed there for a moment. This also gets at another fundamental tension among the protesters on both sides. The people affiliated with Defend Diversity and Coalition for a Diverse Harvard pro-affirmative action protesters were overwhelmingly like rising sophomores and rising juniors. They, they were young students. Many of them said directly that they had benefited from affirmative action. Most were in college, getting the benefits of higher education. And then you look over just a few feet away and the supporters of the Supreme Court's decision were parents of students angry about the fact that they were essentially outsiders. Angry either that their child did not get in or angry that they were sort of set out of the system entirely. And they believe that it's because of race-conscious admissions. A lot of them were like immigrant parents. And it, it looked like it was between Gen X and Gen Z. The protests weren't really about the spectrum of nuanced ideas about affirmative action. It was more about the clean splits. Gen Z versus Gen X. Red signs versus blue signs. People who are in college versus people worried if they'll ever get a spot. It was easy to take one look at the other side and only see enemies. Police eventually push all the protesters across the street. Everyone's pushed into one crowd. So all these protesters who think they share no common ground with the other side are now literally forced to share common ground. So shouting matches break out. Student for Fair Admission supporters were very loud, it, kind of a gloating thing. 
They're yelling, blocking each other with signs. This is one of the pro-affirmative action activists with a microphone, with anti-affirmative action supporters chanting USA in the background. Cam was in another part of the crowd, but she heard the commotion. There's a fight happening between behind the protests. What's happening right now is there's a press conference being held by those that support the decision to overturn affirmative action. But behind them is what appears to be a fight between those that are supporting affirmative action and those that support the decision to overturn affirmative action. There's more. See, almost as quickly as it starts, it all ends. Not long after the fight breaks out, the anti-affirmative action protesters, the people who the Supreme Court just ruled in favor of, wrap up the press conference and just leave the premises entirely. And the fights just stop. They were headed to go see Ed Bloom, the founder and president of Students for Fair Admissions, the leader of the anti-affirmative action movement. He was speaking at the National Press Club at a press conference to break down what all of this means for Harvard and universities across the nation. We're now 1.5 miles away at the National Press Club. It's about a 30-minute walk from the protests, and we're indoors. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, let me introduce the uh, participants of this press conference. On stage, there's one Asian student, Calvin Yang, and three white men, including Ed Bloom. Uh, my name is Edward Bloom, B-L-U-M. I am the founder and president of Students for Fear Admissions. The opinion issued today by the United States Supreme Court marks the beginning of the restoration of the colorblind legal covenant that binds together our multiracial, multi-ethnic nation. He explains that Calvin was a participating member of Students for Fair Admissions and was rejected from Harvard. He's a rising junior at UC Berkeley. Today's victory transcends far beyond those of us sitting in this room today. It belongs to thousands of sleepless high schoolers applying to colleges. It belongs to the overachieving son of a recently unemployed West Virginia coal miner. It belongs to those with the last names of Smith or Lee, Chen or Gonzalez. He goes on to say that he's happy that for the next generation, his child's generation, they won't have affirmative action. But can now rejoice over the fact that at least our kids can be judged based on their achievements and merits alone. If we work hard enough, we all can have a chance at getting our own slice of this grand American dream. So the press conference wraps up. Cam went home. We caught up with her later that evening. All right. So we're a few hours removed from the decision. We're here with Cam. Could you tell us a little bit about what you saw today? It was very personal on both sides, which is, I think, one of the reasons why there were some fights and that it was very tense. I think people felt that way about Roe v. Wade when it was overturned. I mean, it's hard to hear people celebrating something that you 
very personally feel is sort of devastating. To understand it all, we need to go back to the 14th Amendment, which says that everyone should have equal protection under the law. Harvard considered an applicant's race at the final stages of deciding whether they got in, and affirmative action gives a greater boost to some racial groups more than others. So at face value, it seems like it violates the 14th Amendment. But there's actually a built-in way to make exceptions to that rule. Now, it's a really high bar. It's the highest bar in all of judicial review. Strict scrutiny. It asks the court to decide if something has a, quote, compelling interest, or a really, really good reason to say, okay, you don't need to offer everyone equal protection under the law in this very specific case. So for more than 40 years, justices have ruled that diversity on college campuses is a good enough reason to make an exception. In this ruling, the court says, eh, actually, not really. Harvard's race-based admissions program breaks the law. Okay, back to Cam. I think what stood out to me is that the people that we're celebrating had a lot to say about the students that either attend Harvard or attend college generally. And then that was in very stark contrast to the students themselves. I had asked one of the supporters of SFFA that was there, you know, if there were any students that were coming. And I didn't meet a single student there that was happy about the decision. The participating student member of SFFA, Calvin, was at the press conference, but not at the Supreme Court. You know, when people say this is a win for Asian Americans, many of the students that were there protesting were not happy. So you're saying then that on the student side, there was a little bit of a sense of you're putting words in my mouth and this is not me, but this is who you're saying I am. Absolutely. There was a lot of judgments that they felt were being made about them um, that were incorrect. How did you feel covering that event? And how do you feel now? I think you got on the recording that like my hand was shaking and it literally was because we'd all sort of been waiting for this decision for three weeks plus, And then it just happened. Okay, now everything's different. This sets in motion, this massive chain of events, all of the protests, all of the celebrations, and then the much, much, much larger chain in motion, which is all of these schools trying to figure out where they go from here. And I think that's a feeling among both those who view this as a celebration and those that view this as very devastating. Both groups believe that this is sort of historical. As Cam says, all of this is far from over. The decision drop set in motion a huge chain of events that rippled outward across the country. And very soon, the wave hit Harvard. The campus, our campus, where it all began. Here's what we do know. A Pew Research survey conducted last December showed that out of U.S. adults who'd heard of affirmative action before, only 36% said that it was a good thing. Even people who appreciate diversity on campus are torn. Yes, I want reparative measures for historically marginalized students, but do I really want race in a process rooted in merit? The country might say no, but back on Harvard's campus, students have something different to say. That's next. Thank you.
So we're here with design chair and reporter Sammy Turner, who's on the ground in Cambridge on Harvard's campus and has been speaking to students throughout the day about their thoughts and reactions. It's still Thursday, June 29th, hours after the decision dropped. Welcome, Sammy. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Frank. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm curious what you did after the decision release on Thursday morning. Yeah. So around lunchtime, I decided to go get some lunch. So she goes to one of the dining halls or cafeterias on campus. And I decided to sit down with some students. You know, I approach each table, introduce myself. The majority of people got the notification that it dropped on their phones um, the morning of. And at first, you know, a few groups were hesitant to speak on it, but pretty much every single student that I had talked to said that they were disappointed in the decision, but in varying degrees. Would you um, mind saying your first and last name? Carl B. Ho, pronouns uh, he, him, his. Great. And what year are you? I'm a rising senior. Now, they're literally reacting just hours after the decision dropped, so students are still processing. They each have something different to say. And what were your reactions um, to the court's decision today? I definitely wasn't surprised about them. I mean, given the court's current makeup, definitely was personally disappointed. Yeah, I, I read it um, this morning. This is Alex El Amin, a rising senior. Was disappointed, but not surprised. Yeah, yeah. My name is uh, Nami Hubat. She's a rising junior. I guess kind of like disbelief because I thought it was not going to happen. I don't know, I just like didn't predict it, I guess. So funny story, when, when I first uh, was admitted, so several students from my high school in city, when we were admitted, uh, and you go online and you start to see people on Twitter, of course you have all the praise, whatever, blah, blah. And then, you know, you have people who are just like, ah, these kids are in because they're trying to fill a quota, all that. And I'm like, oh, it's kind of funny because Arab Americans are, are not even really considered anything on the census. They're considered white. But, you know, you still have a city full of uh, Arab American immigrants, Muslims, you know, first gen, second gen, all coming in, getting admitted. Personally, like, I, one of the reasons why I maybe didn't want to apply to a lot of those schools is, like, because of that sort of, like, almost like a hyperfixation on your performance in, like, this academic setting and, like, without regard to other factors, like, personal factors, which I think in affirmative action for its maybe issues and for whatever people might say against it, like, it sort of did try to incorporate, right, sort of matters on identity, right? Have you ever uh, gotten a chance to look at your admissions file? Harvard students can ask for admissions officers' comments on their application from the admissions office. What were your reactions when you saw it? It was pretty holistic and like, I didn't feel like, I guess, they, they discriminated against me. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts on affirmative action? I don't think it's a perfect system. I think there are definitely other more effective ways to address racial, social inequities in society. But I think it was definitely a system that like was in the right place and like definitely did help that. Um, it was It was a little disheartening what's supposed to be the highest institution of justice in the U.S. A lot of it felt unconvincing or, or strange in how it was handled. Every, every time I think of it or anything that new the Supreme Court strikes down, I try to think that the greater arc of history bends toward justice. feels like we're reversing that right now. Thank you so much, Sammy. Thanks for having me, Frank. It's now Saturday, July 1st, two days after the decision drop. We're still at Harvard, and students have begun to mobilize.
Hello, this is Austin reporting for The Crimson. Austin H. Wang, one of our reporters at Harvard. It is Saturday, July the 1st, 1.50 p.m. I'm just heading over to the Rally for Affirmative Action. It's a very sunny day. Yeah, so a few tables set up around John Harvard. That's the John Harvard statue. It's the statue that you can see surrounded by foliage and administrative and academic buildings right in front of you when you enter through the main gates of Harvard Yard. Maybe 200 people, at least. A lot of people in purple t-shirts. The t-shirts say our unity is our strength, diversity is our power, blue signs, purple shirts, and a few uh, posters taped to the doors of University Hall, too. That's one of the university's main administrative buildings, home to the offices of deans and other university leaders. Uh, saying uh, affirmative action, yes, equality, opportunity, solidarity. Good afternoon. My name is Catherine and I... So students give a few speeches. It's a little bit hard to hear, but what they're saying basically is that they're here to discuss the decision that's been made by the majority conservative Supreme Court. And as soon as they mention the Supreme Court, the students start booing. Future applicants, they say, we want you here at our campus. They're saying that they plan to continue pressuring institutions like Harvard to create more diverse campuses. That Harvard students won't allow the Supreme Court to weaponize certain races and sow division. So if you pass by Harvard on Saturday afternoon, July 1st, you'd see a crowd of students chanting in unison and booing the Supreme Court of the United States. And just one last stop. Because as all the protests and rallies went on, two of our reporters were poring over the decision, cover to cover, marking up each page. Miles J. Herzenhorn and Neil H. Shaw join us to break down what all of this really means for Harvard, the future of higher education, and universities across the nation. So we're here with Miles Herzenhorn and Neil Shaw. Miles covers the offices of Harvard's president and provost, and Neil covers Harvard Law School. Both of you have been covering this case, Miles from D.C. and Neil from Cambridge. So this ruling isn't just a blanket ban on affirmative action. Miles, how much of race-conscious admissions was struck down and how much of it still stands? So in Robert's opinion, he wrote, nothing in his opinion, quote, should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. That line is incredibly important. And a lot of universities and other legal experts have latched on to that line, noting that that is something that schools can potentially use to potentially foster a more diverse student body as a result. So Harvard Law School professor emeritus Alan Dershowitz told me this morning, if the paragraph is applied correctly, he says, there wouldn't be a loophole, but this essentially creates a loophole that he fears universities are going to use unlawfully. So I'm curious then what OSFFA activists are thinking. So the first thing, Frank, is they're celebrating. That being said, Edward Blum, the president of anti-affirmative action organization Students for Fair Admission, said at a press conference in Washington that, quote, if we feel that a college or university is using something that basically mirrors racial classifications, 
that's something that we would object to. So if they believe someone is using a proxy for race, they will go and they will attempt to litigate that. For sure. Harvard may very well be back in court very soon. That leads us to Harvard's response. What was the official university response, and where is Harvard moving next? Great question. About an hour and a half after the Supreme Court ruling, the initial communication from the university came in the form of an email, a pretty lengthy note sent to all members of the Harvard community in which they essentially said that they will comply with the court's decision and abide by the law, but they also reaffirmed the university's commitment to diversity. What's most notable about this statement is that it was signed by outgoing university president Lawrence Bacow, provost Alan Garber, incoming university president and outgoing FAS dean Claudine Gay, and 15 deans of the university schools. As long as I've been a reporter for the Harvard Crimson, I have never seen the university release a statement that is signed by so many top Harvard officials. It clearly shows that the university took this decision incredibly seriously. So at the end of the day then, how broad can we apply the scope of this decision? And is there a limit that we should watch out for? This is a first step maybe, but it suggests that the court is now open to ruling that other practices that consider race would violate the Constitution. It opens the floodgates. This episode of News Talk was written and produced by Frank Joe and edited by Julian J. Giordano and Frank Joe. Original score by Benji Walfang. From Washington, D.C. and Harvard, this is News Talk.